Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The federal government's made huge progress in reducing security clearance processing times over the last several years, but there are some early slides of backsliding. As Federal News Network reported last week, the latest data shows top-secret investigations took an average of 115 days in the fourth quarter of fiscal 2023, up from 84 days during the same period last year. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, and she's here with us now to talk more about it. And Stephanie, on the the trusted workforce security clearance issues, you know, I I guess the good news is here, if there is any, that security clearances for secret level clearances are are not taking that big of a hit yet, but it is really noticeable on the timeliness of those top secret clearances. I wonder if you and your member companies are starting to see any of those effects in, in real time as these timelines go up and up. I mean, is it starting to affect people's ability to onboard new talent, things like that? Well, it is an area where our member companies are looking very closely at the timelines. And so when they make offers, for example, to potential candidates, that they have that in mind. Do they hold a security clearance? Obviously, there's a premium being paid for those candidates. But what's realistic in in terms of when they can put somebody, a new recruit, onto a a contract? And these lengthening timelines is really a deterrent for, for recruitment. As far as the the explanations that we're getting from the administration on the reasons for for the timeline, do, do, do those make sense to you? They they seem to be indicating that they think this is a temporary problem. I do wonder about the temporary nature of this, and I would because I highlight where we are in the Trusted Workforce 2.0 process, and that is to say, EQIP is a thing of the past. They're moving to this eApp situation where some of the agencies have a have a waiver that they don't have to go to eApp right away. That said. Um, I think some of the increased number of applications they got or initiations for for clearances um, came because people wanted to file under EQIP and not have to go in through an, a new way of initiating clearances. That said, I am not sure I quite understand the government's uh, rationale that the length of time for clearances is because closing older and complex cases or some IT outages. Um, those are somewhat unpredictable, and I'm not sure I understand where they're coming from on that front. Yeah, I guess a large part of it depends on whether they've fixed the IT outages so that those don't recur in the future. <laughs> exactly. And you can never, you know, the, the very nature of an IT outage is that you try to to avoid them at all costs. And I'm not sure how they might avoid them in the future. That said, um, you know, if you go back five years, the, there was such a high number of of clearances in the backlog. It was, I think it, in FY18, it was 725,000 you know, clearances in the process. And they're trying to keep a steady state of 200,000. So an uptick to 225 is is not unreasonable. I just, we are tracking very closely and contractors in particular, what the trends are so that when they do onboard individuals, they have a realistic expectation of when they can put that person on a contract. Let's talk a bit about AI. A lot going on in that space. A new executive order from President Biden. OMB also has a request for comments out on a forthcoming memo that they're going to be releasing here. And I know you've been doing some work to to survey your members about their concerns and what they think the government should, should do. Talk with us a bit about what you're hearing back from those members. Jared, you're exactly right. Our, our members are noticing that AI is sort of the word of the the day, the week, the month, the year. Everyone is talking about AI, whether it's our legislative colleagues up on the Hill or executive branch folks. And, and so when the executive order came out, it had some, you know, 
hundreds of tasks assigned to 50 different agencies, et cetera. Um, we're looking very closely at how these agencies are each um, taking to heart and, and planning on implementing elements of the executive order for which they have responsibility. Uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology in particular with their AI framework. That said, you know, there is a lot of room for dialogue in this space and our members in particular are looking for ways to engage like the OMB request for comments on this memo. Um, you know, broad brush, are they heading in the right direction? What are the ethical and legal implications of use of AI? And Jared, at this point, I'd like to highlight the difference between AI, which a lot of us have been talking about for years, and generative AI, which is, you know, when you think of Isaac Asimov and iRobot and things like that, you you, you look at, you know, what is the, the implication of application of generative AI? And I think that's an area where our members are really wondering what, what's the future here. And I think you came away with some specific recommendations for the White House as they, as they think through, through these issues. You want to talk about those a bit? Of course. I appreciate the opportunity. We at PSC have a very active AI working group, and we are putting out a, a series of white papers. One of them just was released a couple of weeks ago, and we sent it to the agencies. We sent it to the Hill, and it was specifically on the use of artificial intelligence and generative artificial intelligence in federal contracting. One of the areas that contractors is, are uh, closely watching is the area of use of AI in market research, in contracting officers applying it potentially to the evaluation of proposals, et cetera. So we came up with six different recommendations for how um, the government should think about AI in this space, um, looking for opportunities to learn and experiment, obviously, because this is a, a new system um, or a new tool that contracting officers might want, want to use. And of course, the perennial design security into AI, um, how can they protect information, et cetera, on the contracting officer level. But first and foremost, one of our recommendations talks about standardizing AI terminology and using best practices. And we're suggesting that, as I mentioned earlier, um, market research is a really great place to start using AI in federal contracting to, to see what's in the realm of the possible. And it's a relatively low risk as opposed to jumping to AI in proposal evaluation, which we think is is uh, needs to be carefully thought through before that becomes a reality. It's hard enough for human beings to perfectly follow the far. I can't imagine what happens when <laughs> ChatGPT Chat starts getting in there. It would be uh, it would be a, a bit of a minefield. It seems like at this point. I, I think so. I think you know we what the phrase we use in our paper is to experiment with AI tools in market research because that's what it is. And if you go to my father, he often says they call it practicing law and practicing medicine for a reason. No one's got it quite right yet. We can say that we practice AI because no one's got it quite right yet. And as we move forward, I think um, the low hanging fruit or the the easiest way to to see if it's going okay in in federal procurement is in market research. Before you go, I wanted to talk a bit about the appropriations process, such as such as it is. Um, we we continued and not see very many hopeful signs that the House and Senate are going to converge on anything. If anything, they seem to be getting further apart as we move toward these latest deadlines. What are you seeing out there? What are you watching for? There are a few things that we're watching for, and thank you, Jared, for it's always about appropriations in D.C., right? So uh, where are we in the process? And months ago, several people were saying, you know, buckle up for 18 months of continuing resolution because this is a difficult situation that we're facing. With, uh, you know, newly installed Speaker Johnson, he has a vision of, of getting individual bills across the finish line. Um, there are a couple that are 
we're watching very closely and that are uh, tremendous sticking points in this process. And I'll bring your attention to two of them. One is the agriculture bill and one is the transportation, housing, urban development bill. Um, right now, the, the House is looking at cutting ag uh, about 30% from its FY23 levels and T-HUD, as we'll call it, um, about 25%. This, the Senate seems to think, that, you know, the the um, FY23 level is just about right. Um, so this is an area where if those bills can't get across the finish line, um, I wonder whether the White House, and we're looking for signs about how the president feels about this, would he allow um, other bills to be passed, but not the ones that are hugely contentious um, for full year appropriations. So I had a discussion with folks who wanted to talk about um, could the defense bill and the DHS bills get across the finish line when ag and THUD were being held up. Um, I'm not sure the White House would agree to that. Well, one of the thing I, things I keep coming back to here is considering that the CRs have extended so far into FY 2024, if there is a cut of any significant magnitude, what are the implications of that happening midway through the fiscal year when agencies only have, you know, a relatively short time to deal with a sudden drop off in funding? That almost feels like a 2013 sequestration situation. Not quite, but it would be a pretty sudden change. Yeah, for those agencies that are, as, as I mentioned, are tremendously contentious, that is a significant cut. I mean, they're currently operating under levels um, that are significantly higher than what a full year appropriations with a 25% or a 30% cut would, would signify. And of course, we always know that those cuts come out of contracts. It's not like they're going to lay off civilians or military personnel or make them take a pay cut. I'm not advocating for that by, by any means, but I would say, um, you know, a lot of these things really come down to contracts and we'll be the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to that. Um, we'd love to avoid that situation um, where, you know, a sequester is in place um, or significant cuts for, for agencies are in place. Um, but the time will tell. And I hope to get more clarity out of either the House, the Senate or the White House as we move forward to that January 19th deadline for, for these agencies. All right. Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Thanks as always, Stephanie. Thanks, Jared. And you can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. 
Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.